This is an ABC podcast. This is a story about a 19th century wooden box that travelled the globe and changed the world. Hi, I'm Rebecca Huntley and welcome to the History Listen. That box, the Wardian case, named after its inventor, Dr Ward, was used to transport plants around the world. It's like a greenhouse in miniature. And this greenhouse is made of timber all around the base of it. It has a sloping roof, a bit like a little house, and inside the roof are glass inserts. The journey of the Wardian case came to an end just a century after its invention. And it's only now that its impact is being investigated. Producer Sarah Lestrange uncovers the story of the box that changed the world. It begins with performer Jackie Kerrin. When you bite into a pear and the juice dribbles down your chin, when you spread a picnic rug under a shady elm or smell a rose, do you ever ask yourself the question, how did these plants come to be in Australia? Well, it's quite likely the answer lies in the story of the amazing case of Dr Ward. I am fond of pears and smelling roses. But before I came across Jackie Karen's show about Dr Ward's amazing cases, I didn't know anything about it. Jackie performs for children and adults with violinist Sarah Di Pasquale. They'll be your guides, along with historian Luke Keogh. He's an expert on Wardian cases and their impact. You see, before its invention, only a very small number of plants survived those long 19th century sea voyages. The Wardian case changed all of that. Humans are the largest mover of vascular plants on the planet. So basically humans have control of moving all of these plants more than any other process, more than the wind, more than rivers, more than the sea. And so you see the Wardian case as a much bigger symbol of global environmental change. The ships that travelled the treacherous oceans to the Antipodean colony carried all sorts of cargo. Alongside the human cargo, there were animals and, of course, plants. And the first Wardian cases to leave England's shores were destined for Sydney. Since that first journey in 1833, the Wardian case is now seen as part of the biggest story of globalisation. If you look at the modern world around us and what made it, what made uh, income disparities uh, between countries, the, the lifestyles of different peoples, the, the landscapes around us, much of that can be traced back uh, to the 19th century. The famous Royal Botanic Gardens Kew in England sent these miniature wooden greenhouses to many a colonial outpost. Mark Nesbitt is their economic botanist and senior researcher. So if you're interested in the effects of uh, plantation agriculture on landscape, on the peoples who were moved around the world to provide the labour force for plantation agriculture, if you're interested in invasive plants, if you're interested in the ornamental plants and gardens, uh, then you need to understand the 19th century history of the Wardian case. 
We stand on the land of the uh, Bunwarong and Woiwurrung nations, the Kulin nations. And right now we're actually um, standing on a path that sort of divides two of our lakes. And if you have a really good look at this path, you'll see footprints. Um, so one of our elders and her grandson actually created these footprints um, just to give it a bit of perspective. When you visit Melbourne's Royal Botanic Gardens, Victoria, you can explore the indigenous flora that flourished before colonisation and, importantly, before the impact of the Wardian case. Aboriginal program officers Kulkani Chilbara and Jacobi give me a tour. This area called Long Island, or the Lower Yarra uh, Habitat Zone, it's built on the south bank of where the Birrung Ma, the Yarra River, was so... It was straightened in 1901 and it used to flow into this area. What we refer to today is Ornamental and Central Lake, but referred to by mob or by calling mob is uh, Tongagrin. We have some remnant vegetation, so vegetation that has existed here over generations, pre-invasion. We're surrounded by really beautiful fresh water. Uh, we've got some swans swimming in this water, some ducks. We've got a beautiful silver wattle behind you. Um, some eucalypts, banksias, grassy areas as well. At the moment, kind of dry spot at the moment, yeah. Native flora and fauna are in some ways quite rightly celebrated by people all around the world. And researchers from all around the world are becoming interested in this plant-moving box too. Stuart McCook is Professor of History at the University of Guelph in Canada. He has a special interest in environmental history and in this little box that traversed the globe. There are some exotics, of course, that every culture gets quite comfortable with and some that for all practical purposes become naturalized. So it's hard to imagine the Americas without coffee, although coffee is originally from Africa. Um, and, you know, it's now hard to imagine Australia without the grapevine and the wine it produces. So who was the inventor of this little box that changed the world? Nathaniel Bagshaw Ward was born in London in 1791. He was a quiet boy who loved reading, and his favourite subject was plants. Nathaniel grew into a fine young man. He followed in his father's footsteps, studied medicine, became a doctor, and moved into a house in well-closed square in the east end of London and began to see his patients. But still... He dreamed of growing exotic plants. Oh, imagine being able to grow a, a flowering sherry from Japan or a delicate fern from far away Australia. <gasps> Glycenia microphylla. One of the details I love about Dr Ward is that he held microscope soirees. Historian... Luke Keogh. He was a founding member of the Microscopical Society in London, which was a really groundbreaking little group of people that got together. One of the other ones was George Lodiges, who was a famous nurseryman who helped Ward a lot. And they would get together every couple of weeks or once a month and they would look at different things under a microscope. The microscope in the 1820s was also a very new invention. 
Nathaniel Ward was a busy man. He had nine children with his wife Charlotte, but it's not known whether they helped with his gardening and experiments or tended his fern collection. He lived at Wellclose Square, which was not far from the London docks, and out the back of his house he had a wall, a rock wall. He tried to grow numerous ferns on this rock wall. Most of them died. This is about the 1820s, and we must understand that clearly it was very polluted in that area. And so he kept those ferns alive that he could, but he also played around with different natural history experiments. Then one day, Dr Ward was scratching around in his bare backyard in London when he unearthed a chrysalis. Oh, well, 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 I'd bet a penny that this will hatch into a sphinx moth. (laughs) He popped it into a jar with some soil and put the lid on it and checked on it daily. Well, you can imagine his surprise when... (gasps) Butter me on both sides! Why, there is a fern uncurling from the soil! Well, he lost interest in the chrysalis and began to study the fern. Hmm, I wonder how long can a fern live inside a sealed glass jar without adding any extra water? (laughs) This calls for an experiment. He placed the jar on the sheltered side of the house and kept an eye on it. And after three and a half years, the fern was still growing. Dr Ward confidently came to his conclusion, it is possible to grow a plant inside a sealed glass jar without adding any extra water for months, if not years. That first experiment with the sphinx moth was in 1829. How did it go from being a household experiment to something that nurseries, botanic gardens and even plant hunters used to transport plants? Ward was also really well connected. He had lots of friends. And so one of those friends was a chap called George Lodges who ran a very famous nursery called Lodges and Son Nursery. So one day I imagine that Ward is talking to George Lodges in amongst one of their scientific conversations and tells him about the case he's discovered and the principles behind it. And he probably mentioned something along the lines of, well, this would be good for your business because now we can move these plants over long distances. Dr Ward arranged to have some cases made. They must be very sturdy. Yes, 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 yes. Clumsy sailors. Yes, 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 yes. And goats. Goats. Yes, I know. Mr Banks wrote extensively on the subject of botanical specimens and goats on board ships. But does anybody listen? No. (laughs) No. They're approximately four feet long, one and a half feet wide, and then they had a pitch in the roof. If you can imagine, it's like a greenhouse in miniature. And this greenhouse is made of timber all around the base of it. And then it has a sloping roof, a bit like a little house. And inside the roof are glass inserts. So the glass inserts allow light in. And the timber was a solid structure that protected the plants, but it also removed the care needed by people on the ship. 
For millennia, seeds and plants have been moved around the world. There's a wonderful story of Joseph Banks, who built full-scale greenhouses on his ships. But this box, the Wardian case, worked where others failed. History professor Stuart McCook. Ward wanted the case to be sealed, not hermetically sealed. Air could get in and out, but the idea was that the Wardian case would be enclosed. Previous to that, pretty much all botanists and the thinking of all all botanists and all gardeners was that plants needed to be exposed to fresh air. But that fresh air on the deck of a ship could be bitterly cold and it could also uh, allow salt water to fall on the plants. And so all of these things were inimical to plant transfers. He then filled the cases with some soil and planted some grapevine cuttings and grasses and handed them into the care of his good friend, Captain Mallard, who was about to set sail for New South Wales on the Persian. I shall place them high on the poop deck and I can assure you they will not be opened until we arrive at our destination in the Antipodes. A few months later, Charles Mallard arrives in what was Van Diemen's Land, Tasmania, and he writes to Ward and says, your experiment with plants has succeeded, basically. From Tasmania, it goes up to Sydney, and it was intended for Richard Cunningham, who was the director of the Sydney Botanic Gardens. Cunningham wasn't there at that time, and his assistant curator, John McLean, took the case and planted the plants out. But if it's going to be a global transport, you can't just go one way, you've got to go two ways. So then McLean packs up the cases and then in May of 1834, McLean has packed two cases full of Australian plants and he gives them to Mallard, who then continues his basically circumnavigation of the globe. May 1834, Captain Mallard steered the Persian out into the Pacific and he goes through different climatic environments again. When he's passing through the Cape of Good Hope, he has something like a foot of snow on the deck of the ship. They sailed north across the Atlantic, across the equator, and finally, they sailed up the Thames to London. Ward and Lodges are there. They go up onto the ship and they are completely delighted because all the plants are alive. Oh, butter me on both sides. It's Glycenia microphylla. Which is a little coral fern. Why, this is the first time this delicate beauty has been seen alive in England. And it was an Australian plant that got there. I declare my cases a success. Finally, Dr Ward had his precious Glycenia microphylla. 
So the first person to really use the warding case was George Lodiger. So almost immediately after the success of them, he put into motion apparently, as he said, 500 cases, which is a huge sum. And the nurseries made a lot of money. The trade of plants between botanic gardens increased. It even made it into popular culture. Historian Stuart McCook. In Victorian London, there was a a fern craze. And my favourite piece of Victorian culture is that the Wardian case was actually included in a poem by Alfred Lord Tennyson. Shall I read a bit of it? Oh, yes, please. But what is that I hear? A sound like sleepy counsel pleading. O Lord, tis my neighbour's ground, the modern muses reading. They read botanic treaties and works on gardening through there and methods of transplanting trees to look as if they grew there. The withered misses how they prose or books of travelled seamen and show you slips of all that grows from England to Van Diemen. They read in arbours clipped and cut and alleys faded places by squares of tropic summer shut and warmed in crystal cases. And in Australia, the newspapers announced, the Wardian cases have arrived. Come and get your lemon, lime, orange, peach, pear, plum trees. And we have primroses. So in the 1850s, a ship carrying a humble primrose uh, in a Wardian case docked in Melbourne and was received by some 3,000 people clamouring to view this incredible flower uh, that had travelled for weeks, months across the oceans to reach foreign shores. It's really hard to imagine a flower like the humble primrose attracting a crowd in the thousands. Tansy Curtin is the curatorial manager at Bendigo Art Gallery, and she's co-authored a book called Blooms and Brushstrokes, a floral history of Australian art. They actually had to bring the police in and security guards to guard this humble little flower. And they essentially created a special guard of honour alongside the, the wharves uh, so that the primrose could follow sort of past the people and everyone would have an opportunity to glimpse this, this symbolic flower, this uh, remembrance of home, of course, of England and all of the, that it brought with it. The arrival of the primrose in Melbourne made headlines in England, which is how the English painter Edward Hopley came to create his very grand and impressive painting called The Primrose from England. It dates to 1855. And now as you walk around Bendigo Art Gallery, you can see this very painting. It depicts the arrival of this dainty primrose in Melbourne. There's a central Madonna-like figure admiring the flower, surrounded by the hoi polloi of the new colony. When you look at something like the history of Australia, this can be seen as a very symbolic gesture in terms of Australian history. That idea of the primrose representing this new life, this new world, essentially, in Australia and all of that brings. But also a flower such as the primrose, which is very much native to England, representing... I suppose, the might of the uh, British Empire to be able to transport something from England to a new and alien land. Even the humble primrose was a colonial messenger and it was carried in a Wardian case. 
there are no hard and fast numbers for the scale of plant movement after the invention of the Wardian case. But Mark Nesbitt from Kew Gardens says the changes to the environment were massive. It's been estimated that around about one and a half million square kilometres of tropical forest were cut down in the 19th century. And an awful lot of that was for the plantation crops spread in Wardian cases. Like tea, quinine and rubber. Latex comes from many different varieties of plants that grow. The most sought after one is from a plant called Havea brasiliensis, which is a plant that grows in Brazil. And in the 1860s, it was a highly sought after crop because basically Brazil monopolised this trade. They had people in their Amazonian forests which were tapping rubber trees and then were able to sell it around the world. So the British, through both the Royal Botanic Gardens queue and through their um, foreign office, decided that they needed this crop in a different location. So they acquired about 74,000 seeds of Havea brasiliensis, which is a lot of seeds, and he put them in a ship and then he sailed them back to London. And what's really interesting about this moment is that these were seeds moved and everyone knows that Havea seeds go rancid really quickly, so they had to act very fast in getting these from the ship and into the soil. So at Kew, they cleared out their entire orchid house and put the seeds in. Fortunately, about 6,000 of those plants grew and they quickly packaged them into Wardian cases, about 34 of them, and sent them on to what is today Sri Lanka. Now, what you see here with the Wardian cases is that it didn't move the first shipment, but it was instrumental in moving, in acting quickly to get those from London to then get them into Southeast Asia. If you know anything about rubber today, you understand that Southeast Asia is the biggest producer of natural rubber. These days, there are only a dozen known Wardian cases left in the world. Kew Gardens in England has about eight, and they keep finding them. Well, when Luke Kiao started the, this project, I think really the only case that we knew about was the uh, one at Kew, and I only knew of one there, now I know of eight. Uh, once you start asking and people start looking in sheds, uh, they start turning up. Uh, so I certainly expect that you know, we now know, I think, globally perhaps 12 or 13 uh, original warden cases. Uh, but I hope that perhaps as a result of this program, we will be able to increase that number. In Australia, there is only one left. Well, a lot of people really have no idea what a Wardian case is when we show it to them. Deborah Tyler is the president of the Waruna Historical Society, which is south of Perth. We believe here at Waruna in Western Australia, we have the only example in Australia of an original wooden Wardian case. Now, whether uh, other people have them stored away and haven't come forward, uh, we're not sure. Originally came from the Hamill Nursery and Hamill Nursery was West Australia's first state nursery. Uh, and when the nursery closed down, the box was used as a, a dog kennel at one stage. The front of the box uh, has been cut out, a small square has been cut out, and uh, I was told that it had been used as a dog kennel. 
But uh, yeah, a lot of people are surprised when they find out what it actually is. How did it come to this point where there's one known example of a Wardian case in Australia? Despite its use over 100 years in transporting plants around the world. The very principle of the Wardian case is that it's a microenvironment. So it's not just plants that are moving, it's an environment that's moving. And so if we know anything about environments is that they are very complex, there's often many things inside them which we can't see or we don't know about. So as the Wardian case is moving around the world, it's also moving a lot of soil, it's moving a lot of things attached to plants, and so it's sending things that we might not want. And this we know as invasive species and the unintended consequences of movement. And so about a century or so, you start to notice in the 1930s, they start to notice that the Wardian case is moving many things that we don't want. And so that's the sort of larger context. And also the smaller context is that simply a technology moving on a boat is also much slower than just um, how they do it today, which is just to pull a plant out of the ground and clean the soil off it, wrap it in a plastic bag, and then just uh, put it in a box and FedEx it wherever it needs to go. So the technological change in transportation also warranted that Wardian cases didn't need to be used anymore. The Wardian case has a complex history as a cog in the colonial machinery of the British and other empires. How do we understand its importance? Historian Stuart McCook. The Wardian case is one of a set of key tools of globalization, for better or for worse. The plants it moved around the world have fed people, have provided people with livelihoods, have helped grow national economies, But on the downside, they have perhaps allowed for colonialism to flourish. Uh, The Wardian cases have helped move, at times, devastating crop diseases and pests. And I think because of all of this complex legacy of the Wardian case, we see also the larger complex legacy of globalization, both as uh, a project but also as a practice. what became of Dr. Ward? He died at 77. And despite the success of his invention and being a member of the Royal Society, he was buried in an unmarked grave. In 1842, he did publish a book called On the Growth of Plants in Closely Glazed Cases. But perhaps not surprisingly, it wasn't a money spinner and he never registered a patent for the invention. But in a letter he wrote late in life, He says he would do it all again. 33 years have elapsed since my first cases arrived in New Holland. I have never received the slightest acknowledgement or thanks from any public body in this country. But were my time to come over again, I should do precisely as I have done, considering that my life, though one of constant labour, has been one of great delight. So, the next time you bite into a pear and the juice dribbles down your chin, or 
you spread a picnic rug under a shady elm or smell a rose. Just think, the ancestors to these plants might have come to Australia in one of Dr Ward's amazing cases. The Box That Changed the World was produced by Sarah Lestrange with sound engineer Richard Gervin. Check out some photos of the Wardian case on the History Listen website, as well as a short video about the story of this incredible history-making object. I'm Rebecca Huntley. Thanks for your company. See you next time. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.